This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, who's also a senior economist for WisdomTree. I'm also a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. We're going to have a really interesting discussion today on where to be investing over the next decade. We have an interesting CIO based out of Europe. We're going to get to his views on what's happening around the world in just a moment. But Professor, another blowout week for tech. NVIDIA hot after uh, everybody He's been saying, is NVIDIA going to carry the market forward? Curious to get your views uh, on what's been happening. Yeah. And first, let me say that, uh, as you know, Jeremy, you were with me. I just spent two wonderful days in New York uh, celebrating um, my retirement, 45 years at Wharton. Um, Still active, though, as as everyone knows. And um, um, but uh, it was uh, it was the wonderful gathering of all past students. And I'm very thankful. Um, all right, so where are we? Economy's still strong. Now, um, uh, we were getting some talk about next move, uh, the Fed being up. So let, let, let's, let's take a, a look at, uh, at what's happening. Um, uh, yeah, jobless claims kind of inch down, down to that 201,000. And we've talked about the fact that my comfort zone is 200 to 240. It's a notoriously volatile week-to-week indicator, um, but, uh, you know, shows strength in that labor market. And uh, so there's, uh, you know, th- this prompted talk of, uh, wow, this uh, a rate cut could be delayed for a, a long time. And it, it might be delayed, but let me tell you that this does not worry me. There's, there's uh, a couple things going on that uh, uh, keep me in the comfort zone about a flare-up of inflation. The first thing is the uh, commodity indices, uh, particularly the Bloomberg uh, commodity indices, is still scraping down to new lows. Um, uh, we, we, you know, we still don't see those those sensitive uh, commodities rise, and that's one of the early uh, warning uh, signals that we have. Secondly, as I pointed out last week, I, I expect a reversal in February of uh, the um, uh, inflation uh, that we had, mainly because of uh, quirks in the shelter index. So I think we're going to get a good reading uh, on that coming up. Uh, So that's, uh, you know, we don't have a meeting until March 20th. There's a lot of data, jobs reports, inflation reports, et cetera. So, you know, everyone's trying to brainstorm the Fed. But let's go on to NVIDIA, blowout. Uh, bringing the entire text uh, up, um, sector back up. There, there's no question that uh, 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 that this is a special company and this is a special time where the demand for semiconductors because of AI is ramping up. Uh, as I was in New York, uh, the biggest discussion was, you know, are, are we in the early stage of a blow-off, a, a bubble? That's impossible to tell. I don't think we're in a bubble now. I don't think NVIDIA is overvalued. I don't think it's undervalued. I I'm, I don't have a particular feeling, uh, or nor am I an expert on its its proper valuation. Um, uh, can it go much further? It's what eight hundred? Could it go to a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand? Absolutely, it could. Um, um, and would it be overvalued at those prices? I would say it would be, but doesn't mean it cannot go there before it finally goes down. Uh, the big discussion are: is this like, uh, is this like 1997, 98 in semiconductors, the way the internet was in 97, 98, which just kept on going up and then blew off in a crash? Um, you don't know. You don't know. I, first of all, these are much sounder companies. Uh, you know, we're nowhere near those valuations. Secondly, the memory of 2000 uh, is fresh in the minds of many, except maybe of the youngest members of our investing community. 
So I don't think we're going to get anywhere near that level. But these trends, FOMO, fear of missing out on NVIDIA and some semiconductors could drive that wave much further and beyond fundamentals uh, to be uh, to be sure uh, on that. Um, uh, th- th- it also marks the fact that uh, although it, the interest rates have remained high, um, uh, the economy is chugging, real rates are higher, but the impulsive demand is strong enough to maintain it. Uh, I'm not going to speculate on when the Fed may or may not cut because it's it's totally data dependent uh, looking at the future. I do want to mention one milestone that was reached uh, just yesterday, and that is for the first time in almost three and a half decades, the Nikkei, uh, Japan's most popular index, sometimes called the Dow Jones of, the, of Japan, it's not its most inclusive index, but its most popular index, um, finally surpassed the high that it reached in 1989. Uh, a lot of people bring that up and say, hey, what about stocks for the long run? It takes 30, 35 years to get back to where you were. Uh, that doesn't speak very well for long-term investors. One has to remember, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, that the Nikkei stocks and the whole Japanese market were selling at 80 to 90 times earnings at the peak of that bubble in the late 1980s. Compared today, where S&P is at 20 times earnings. In other words, we would have to have the Dow at 150,000 to be uh, where the Nikkei was in 1989 today. So, uh, yeah, um, when you get uh, overvalued by a factor of five and six and seven, it will take a long time after the bubble burst for you to get back. Uh, the, the Japanese market is selling um, for about 15, 16 times earnings, still very reasonable. They've got some good things going. Depreciation of the yen will make them more competitive. Uh, it is an older society, uh, and, um, you know, all that seems to weigh on the innovation that is capable there, but there's no question Japanese are hard workers, and um, uh, this, uh, this, this enthusiasm is welcome. Yeah, it's interesting. That still remains one of my favorite value markets, and it's been trading like a growth market for the last three years. It's sort of interesting dynamics on some of those some of those tech stocks and, and other parts of the global exporters there. But interesting, Professor, you, even the, at the way you asked the question of tech, is it 97, 98? We've got some tech bulls like Dan Ives of Wedbush. He's probably one of the more notable tech bulls now saying it's 95. You know, he still thinks we're <laughs> super early in the cycle. Um, but it's, yeah. you know, it's an interesting question of, of where we net out on that. And obviously it's, it's, just too early to tell. The wave, we all know, I mean, the wave of enthusiasm on on this, I mean, it could carry much longer. I mean, if I were to bet, it's going to carry longer. Um, uh, you know, we uh, eventually uh, it, it will spike downward, you know, up the ladder, the, down the elevator. When you get this sort of, this, we, we economists call it martingale type of, uh, of, of uh, probabilistic. So, you know, um, I mean, the probability is, you know, well, well over 50%, the trend will continue. But when it stops, it's going to be hard. And, uh, who, you know, who knows how to, how to jump off that. But all that said, yeah, I mean, um, we are, uh, if 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 there's a wave of enthusiasm coming for these stocks, their valuation right today does not prevent that val- that enthusiasm from bringing stocks far higher than they are today. Professor, it was great being with you for the two days in New York. Uh, a great uh, a great event and great retirement dinner uh, from the teaching at Wharton last night in, in in New York. So it was great to be with you. Thanks for joining us to, to kick off the show. We'll see you next week, Jeremy. I'm going to turn my conversation to Charles Henry Monchow. He's the CIO at Bank Sis. Charles, welcome to Behind the Markets. 
Thank you so much for the for the warm welcome and for the invites. No, this is great. We're we're glad we got all these uh, we got you connected here. You heard a little bit about the professor's kickoff, um, and we talked a little bit about AI. You know, you have an outlook piece that I find fascinating, and uh, I think it's you know very well titled. Maybe we could start with one of your pieces talking about the new fangs versus the old fangs. Uh, maybe you could just sort of comment on where you think if you had to put where we are on today's tech bubble what year from the tech bubble are we in 95 99 some somewhere different but, but then i want you to sort of start talking about the new fangs and the case for the new fangs yeah if, if you if you don't mind i would just like to start with uh let's say the the most recent piece which is uh exactly about what you just discussed with uh, uh professor siegel which is you know are we about uh to enter uh, a bubble similar to the one of the end of 90s and, and this is by the way uh uh, I'm old enough to have been to to have gone through this through this time, which was quite fascinating and dangerous. Um, so the the, the points uh, um, we made in this note is that yes, there are some similarities, but there are also some key differences. And I would just take one number because this is uh, Nvidia week. So uh, let's start with Nvidia. Indeed, uh, if you look at Nvidia stock since the start of 2022. So the stock is up 130% because obviously in 2022, the stock went through a correction. But if you sum up 2022, 2023, and the start of 2024, so the stock is, is, is more than double, uh, plus 130% appreciation total return. But in the meantime, earnings have been going up 231%, whereas valuation has actually compressed quite substantially. And NVIDIA is making a lot of money NVIDIA is generating a lot of free cash flows, and NVIDIA is, is buying back shares, buying back shares you know, heavily. So I think that's a key difference because, you know, it's, uh, you might be, um, you are probably younger than me, and I, I don't know if you went into all of the details of the, of the uh, uh, let's say, dot-com bubble, but the dot-com bubble was full of, let's say, new companies, IPO, coming for IPOs. They were not making any money. Their business model was quite weak, uh, no economic moat, uh, all competing against each other, so cannibalizing each other. And today, yes, we have, it, it, you, you, we can say it's a bubble, but the, the bubble, bubbles needs to be, you, you need to write bubbles, and bubbles can, can last a very long time. And when it comes to NVIDIA and, and the other, uh, some of the other Mac 7, we can call them now the Mac 4, the Mac 5, these guys, they are phenomenal business models, uh, there are a lot of cash to invest into R&D, uh, to hire the best people. Um, they have margins which are way higher than the rest of the market. They have sales growth which is way higher than the rest of the markets. And they constantly or, or most of the time beat expectations. So from, from that perspective, in a, although, yes, they look pricey, yes, the, the price appreciation is quite phenomenal, I think there are differences. Now, if I may, can I, let me come back to your question, uh, the yes. new things. So here, the idea is the following, is that this decade is very different from last decade. Last decade, we, we, you know, I call this the, the total cycle. So growth was anemic. It was low inflation. So we were moving slowly, and, and inflation is the blood of an animal, so inflation was indeed quite, quite low. So it was a total cycle. And in a total cycle, you have... You, we had central banks printing money massively to try to keep, let's say, the economy afloat. And this has nurtured many bubbles, including fixed income bubble, by the way, and equity bubbles. At the time, the world was quite peaceful. Yes, there were some wars, but the world was quite peaceful. Fast forward to this decade, this time is different. We have what I call the East-West divide. So basically... Uh, the relationship between the EU and Russia is broken for quite a while, probably. The relationship between China and U.S. is breaking, and there are already some casualties you know, arising from this. So China buying less, much less uh, U.S. Treasury than before, and FDI is going to China from the U.S., uh, uh, really, let's say, plummeting. We have the BRICS pension, so the emerging markets wants to uh, you know, emancipate themselves from from the West. And that is creating 
a different macro outcome than what we witnessed last decade. So one, we have inflation, which is currently going down, but which is probably here to stay. So we believe that inflation might be high for longer. Why? Because when you have a world which is more dangerous, companies are reshoring or friendshoring. They are also investing into, if you take the US, they are investing to make their industry, the local industry, much more competitive to avoid facing the risk of being dependent on China, for instance, or Taiwan on semiconductors. So they're investing a lot, but which is also inflationary. Um, you have also the move from just-in-time to just-in-case inventory because you, you, can, you, can, you, can, you don't want to be dependent on trades anymore. So all of this is inflationary. All of this means higher debt. Um, all of this means that uh, there will be, let's say, a move into nominal growth. So when you have that kind of, uh, let's say, macro context, the sector leadership might be changing. So what I mean by the new fangs is that instead of, let's say, the whole fangs, some of them are now part of the max seven and they're probably going to do, do okay. But the new fangs are basically F like fuel, because yes, there is still a huge need of access to energy. You know, I'm, I'm currently, let's say, sitting in Europe. Europe is massively dependent on energy, and this is a huge issue. The U.S. Is, has become the, has became the, the largest oil producer in the world, and this for a reason, uh, because they want, don't want to be dependent on this. So there is this, uh, let's say, need for F, uh, like fuel. Uh, a, like, agri- uh, like aerospace and defense, because yes, the world has become more dangerous. So unfortunately, there is a need to rearm and you probably you know, follow what is happening in, in Germany, where they, you know, they commit to higher spending. And I think if you have a change of administration in the U.S., uh, the rest of the world would be even more, let's say, under pressure to invest into more aerospace and defense. Then there is the end, like nuclear, which has been the uranium case, investment case, has been one of the, let's say, the biggest story we have been pushing over the last uh, three years, and if you look at COP28 in Dubai, there was a huge commitment by you know uh, most uh, uh, developed and emerging uh, world's governments to go into uranium. So that's the end of nuclear. Then there is a G like gold and minerals because you know uh, to make a long story short, because you know there are, there are more debt, there is more inflation. We are currently going to what I call money debasements, and yes, store values are in high demand, but also minerals which are needed for the energy transition. Uh, I forgot one A, which is agriculture, and this is probably something which is underestimated. Um, There is uh, indeed the need uh, to have access to food. And if you look at, let's say, countries like China, uh, also the Middle East, uh, there is an urgency to move on this. So here the point is to say, look, you know, this time is different indeed. You know, we are moving into a world which is more, probably more dangerous, more complicated. But that means also new leadership. Um, and you need to look at, yes, tech, and, and we look at tech, but you, look also, you need also to look beyond tech. And uh, there are many stories currently going on beyond tech. You know, I love this new things concept. I, so I think it's a very, it, was, it's, it really spoke to me and as, as something that really is a very different decade ahead versus the last decade if, if all your views come to fruition. So we could drill into a lot of them. But given that you're sitting in Europe, you know, with, I have a global business. We have a big U.S. footprint and a big European footprint. Yep. In Europe, you know, it's a very been different mentality. Like every product that we would launch in Europe, there's an ESG requirement to try to screen. There's this big mentality yep. that you avoid the controversial weapons, that you're less energy specific, or this decarbonization trend, the energy transition, all these things there's a mentality that we should be screening out those things. In the US, it's been a very different mentality. Do you think that the mentality towards ESG needs to change in Europe? Do you see that part of the problem? How do you look at all that? Yeah, so the way we summarize it, it's a very good point. And I, I know that this is the case, especially when you come, uh, when, you, when it comes to distribute investment products, because they all need to be labeled uh, ESG in some ways. And I know it's, it's, quite a, it's often a shock, let's say, for non-European uh, uh, fund managers and distributors. So very good point. 
the, the way I summarize this, they like, look, you know, sustainability is, um, I think it's a great endeavor. You know, it's, uh, it's definitely a very uh, honorable mission, but it needs to be pragmatic sustainability. And let me, let's explain why I'm saying this. The way I see the words, again, you know, becoming more dangerous, but becoming more probably nationalist. If I look at what's going on in the U.S., and I'm not going to do any politics, but if I look the last four years, I think the U.S. has done something exceptional in terms of strengthening their industrial, um, let's say, their industrial production capabilities. There have been the IRA. Um, there have been the Cheap Act. Um, and, and now you have this access to energy, to oil, which has never been that strong. So basically, the U.S. has re-industrialized itself. And they're also doing some French shoring with Mexico, for instance, in Canada. So the U.S. is becoming very strong for the years to come. And while I'm saying this, I kind of, I'm kind of worried. So I'm, I'm in Switzerland, which is a kind of a special island. But in Europe, yes, they have these, let's say, um, key mission to become more sustainable, to decrease carbon emission. And yes, they are the leaders on this. If you look at the UK or if you look at EU, they have been the region of the world where decarbonization has been, let's say, the most, by far, the most dramatic. But in the meantime, they are losing their industrial engine. There is one very single example on this, is what is happening with the auto industry in Germany. German cars used to be, you know, the leaders by, by all means in terms of, you know, in terms of auto industry. Look at the way they are screwing up in terms of the shift into electric vehicles. Who are the leaders? Tesla, BYD. All of the German cars, German manufacturers, they are way behind. So although this, let's say, energy transition, ESG, was indeed very much led by Europeans, they are missing, let's say, the train because they, are, they focus too much on the ultimate goal without focusing on the means which are needed. And here, you know, when I look at Europe, my, my fear is that they are deindustrializing instead of reindustrializing. And on top of that, because what hap- has happened between Euro- EU and Russia, they don't have access to energy which is critical. To me, you know, to, if I summarize it very simply, economy is about, let's say, taking an input, using energy, and you create an output. So if you miss the energy part, you are in great troubles. And, and this is my fear with Europe. So yeah. they, they still have great companies. You know, we, we don't have the Max 7 in Europe. We have the Granolas. So think about luxury companies like LVMH or L'Oreal. Um, pharma company like Roche or GlaxoSmithKline, and these granolas have been performing well. But these granolas are all about exports. The, the domestic economy is, is, is struggling. And again, some of the key exporters like the uh, German auto cars, auto manufacturers, are currently facing massive issues. So I think that's the, in these new words, Europe needs to wake up, keep, let's say, the face into what they think is good for humanity. I think that's great. It's, it's a, again, it's a great mission. But they also need to think about, you know, what people, people, the people need to eat, you know. They look at what they have in their plates. And I think on this, we're a bit beyond. You, as part of your end in the fangs is the nuclear part of the transition. In the part, one of your things I thought was really compelling on the supply chain issues and how reliant Germany was on natural gas from Russia and sort of the leverage of the supply chain in there. Do you want to talk through how you think about that supply chain leverage of how much value added comes to, from the from the natural gas that was you know reliant on Russia? Yeah, so that's uh, if you look. Well, we all know about operating leverage or financial leverage, and indeed there is something which is uh, basically the supply chain leverage. And when it comes to Germany, if you like, if you look at the value added. Uh, of the German economy, which is which is more than one trillion euros, to create these one trillion euros, uh, they needed at the time only 20 billion coming from 
Russian natural gas. So if you miss, if you, if you miss this 20 billion of these, or if these 20 billion uh, inputs suddenly become inaccessible, you put at risk one trillion euros. And yes, you know, if you look at Germany, though, they, they are trying to adapt, you know, they, they are, uh, you know, I was in Turkey recently, and it was a big uh, German industrial companies um, building a new manufacturer uh, on, you know, uh, on the shore of Istanbul, uh, trying to get some gas coming from uh, um, Tajikistan and, and other countries, like uh, other Central uh, Eastern European countries. So they try to adapt, but that means that they also expose themselves to other geopolitical risks. So that's why, you know, I'm insisting on this access to energy, because it's true that here in Europe, we thought that with thanks to wind, thanks to hydroelectric power, or thanks to solar, we'll soon be, let's say, independent from fossil fuels. But the reality is that, yes, you know, Europe has been investing a lot into these renewables, but we are still very dependent on fossil fuel. And we need, we need to access this fossil fuel, because otherwise there is no, let's say, industrial leadership. And, and, and to me, that's, that's a concern, let's say, for the, let's say, European economy. You know, the, it's very hard to forecast how these politics are going to change and the geopolitics and, 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 the, and, and the war. But if you had to, with your hat on, how do you see this Russia-Ukraine situation settling, when it would settle? What, how do you think it ends up playing out over the course of the coming years? Well, as, as I mentioned initially, I think that if you look at the two uh, big geopolitical alliances of the last decade, so one which is China and U.S., so Team America, if you want, and the other one being Russia and EU, so uh, EU, I call it EU-Russia, I think the, the EU-Russia is broken for a very long time. I think here it's whatever can happen. I think as long as Mr. Putin is in place, I don't see how the Europeans can change, let's say, their mind toward Russia. And, and keep in mind that, you know, we have countries like, you know, Poland, uh, which are very close to us and, and which are, you know, very much uh, against this regime. And it's very, it will be very, very difficult to change it. So I think this is for the long haul. The, the Chi America, I think it, I know it's very bipartisan, the U.S., um, but the thing is that it's becoming so lose-lose as a relationship with again China losing all of the SDIs and or well, a lot of the SDIs and and Chinese don't let's say buying much less treasuries than before at a time where the US needs a lot of buyers for the US treasuries. I think this one, there is a little chance, little probability of getting a, a good news. Uh, and, and the last anecdote on this was um, uh, the, the, the Panda story. Uh, I don't know if you saw, but uh, there is a contract uh, between the U.S. and China, but the, the, the Chinese are, are renting some pandas to the U.S. And the, the contract got, you know, to the end. And they, they you know, militarily uh, choose to renew the contract. So the Chinese are going to send new pandas to the U.S. So you can see that they, they want to keep the dialogue open. And who knows, you know, this could be a good surprise. But for Europe and Russia, I can tell you from here, from the ground, um, it's, uh, it will be very, very difficult. Well, the China situation is, is very top of mind for what the, for the NVIDIA discussion that we were just having about the semiconductors and the chips. So is, yeah. is, is there any, do you, th if it doesn't take a positive surprise, like what's, what, t what is your downside scenario in that relationship? Is it, uh, do you, how do you think China plays its calculus? You know, there's all the, all, there's all sorts of questions. People have said China becomes uninvestable. Is that in your view, can you still invest in China? Or do you look at it as, Hey, maybe it's going to find a bottom here because people are so negative on sentiment. It's sort of the opposite of the mag seven in terms of valuations. It's these stocks are as cheap as they've been as I remember watching them, but uh, people just feel sentiment is so hard because of all this politics. Like, how do you think about China today? Yeah, it's true, but the sentiment is, is, I think, is totally washed out. What you mentioned, uninvestable, is, is probably right in the sense that many large asset 
asset managers or wealth managers, they have taken out China from their SAA, strategic asset allocation. So that's, it is happening. Um, so yeah, it's the sentiment is washed out. At the, t- at the same time, companies are still doing, some companies are still doing great. You know, if you take Alibaba, it's, uh, I think the, 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 the fundamentals are phenomenal and it's down cheap. Now, I think one fear, which is currently out there, is that cheap can get, can get cheaper because politics sometimes can indeed have a terrible consequences on the financial market. You know, we just mentioned Russia. Russia has been cheap for so long, you know. It was possible to buy fantastic oil companies for four times, five times PE. And guess what? The war happens, and now they are truly uninvestable. So I think that's the fear of many investors that politics sometimes can really change the game. Yeah, and worse than uninvestable, it's that if, like, as, I mean, I, I, I don't know, know if it's, I think maybe even somewhere in Europe, but in the US, they, they didn't penalize Russians. They penalized Americans for having bought their Russian stocks. And so they forced you to write these things down to zero, which basically these Russian oligarchs could buy their companies back for free. It's helping Russia and hurting Americans. I mean, it was, a, and so it's like you worry about that for China, which is, a strange dynamic is, you know, you didn't think it was possible. Well, would they write you down to zero? Maybe there'd be problems, maybe it would go down a lot. But the write downs to zero, I think, was a, is what has a lot of people, including myself, scared, you know, nervous about China. You're, you're right. You're right. And, and just to maybe finish on this semiconductor story, you know, I'm, again, I'm very impressed uh, looking, let's, with looking at this from Europe about the Chief Act. I think that the, the, the projects, uh, which are currently ongoing in the U.S. to really build on-the-ground capabilities in terms of semiconductors is just impressive. And by the way, I, 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 uh, this is something that really impressed me, is that many European companies currently are building semiconductors manufact- uh, factories in the U.S. to take advantage of the cheap facts. But basically... The U.S. is 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 becoming a kind of new hub uh, for for these semiconductors and trying to ring fence anything bad that can happen. Would it be you know between China and Taiwan, but also trying to lower the risk of all of this you know supply chain risk that we mentioned before. You know, one of the big stories has been the implications of all these markets across currencies um, with all this sort of views on inflation. The dollar has been incredibly strong. Uh, I, I wonder how much we talked a little bit about oil in the first half. I wonder how much you think oil has changed the relationship for the dollar. When I look at the U.S. being an oil importer of 13 million barrels back in 2008, now an oil exporter, 2 million. Has that made the dollar fundamentally stronger? A lot of people want to believe there's going to be a collapse of the dollar. Um, but you in Switzerland talk about how strong the, the Swiss currency has been for so long. Um, what, what's your view on, on what's going on in the currency markets today? Let me, yeah, let me try to uh, tackle this, uh, you know, um, from various angles. So first, uh, let's talk about the petrodollar. Uh, because, you know, before I was mentioning the difference between this decade and last decade. Well, the petrodollar has been there for years, for decades. Um, as a reminder, the goal was to, let's say, have uh, the Middle Eastern exporters um, have their having their, their their oil being exported and, and denominated dollars, and then having this oil being exported in dollars. That means that the dollar could be recycled mainly into the U.S. economy, buying U.S. Treasuries, for instance making the dollar the reference currency of the world, or the reserve currency of the world, sorry. Um, and in exchange, the Middle East uh, got, let's say, the protection from the U.S. And, and this has been let's say, a, a deal which uh, has been there for, for decades. Now, I think what is changing from a geopolitical standpoint is that the emerging world, the developing world, wants to emancipate itself. So we had the BRICS, and now we have the BRICS Plus, and in the BRICS Plus, you have countries like Saudi or UAE and United Arab Emirates, uh, which are both huge oil exporters. And they are even talking about a BRICS Plus currency. You probably remember 2022 when suddenly, you know, some of commodities being exported 
for instance, between Russia and India, or between Saudi and China, got denominated in different currencies. So there are some oil trades took place in Indian rupiah, some oil trades, you know, took place in uh, Chinese renminbi. So all of this is a, is a new trend. It will probably, let's say, take decades to, let's say, not replace the dollar, but come with a competitive, let's say, currency against the dollar. Currently, there is no, let's say, decent competitor. I think the euro is not there. Uh, the one is not there, you know, either because of what is going on in China. Um, so there is no competition, but competition might come, and these BRICS plus currency could be one of them. So that's, let's say, first thing on the dollar. The second thing on the dollar is that, as discussed before, the U.S. has been reindustrializing itself, but this comes at a cost, and the cost of the Bidenomics is massive debts. The debts. Uh, is increasing at a recall pace, record budget deficits. And that means that, well, the U.S. will never, you know, um, do, will never default, but the dollar will continue to be debased. And this body debasement is something which has been there for some time, but which might be accelerating. So if I, if I look at the dollar against Weaker currencies, the dollar is still strong. It was strong, has been strong, let's say, for the last two years. But if I look at the dollar against gold, against Bitcoin, I believe in more, let's say, dollar devaluation against store values because of the, the deteriorating fundamentals I mentioned. Now comes into um, the picture of the Swiss franc. Because the Swiss franc is a bit like gold, if you want. It's a, it's a niche market. Uh, it's not that liquid as a currency, but the fundamentals of the country are very strong. And that means that the Swiss franc has been appreciating over the years against most currencies. And if you take the dollar and the pound, for instance, if you look since the 1970s, the Swiss franc on average has been appreciating 3% every year against the dollar and has been appreciating 5% against the pound every year. So you can see that it's, it's quite, let's say, a strong currency. And one of the few remaining, because the yen at some point, if you remember a few years ago, was Japanese yen was the defensive currency. is not the case anymore. So the Swiss franc is a bit the last man standing. And what happened last two years was very interesting. If you remember the last decade, many countries were pursuing what is called currency wars. So when your growth is too weak, what you do is that you try to weaken your currency to export more. Now that we have inflation, this is not what most countries want to do, because if you have your currencies depreciating at the time of inflation, you're creating more inflation. So look at the case of Switzerland. In Switzerland, for years, we have always the central bank, the, the Swiss National Bank, has always tried to make the Swiss franc weaker because the Swiss franc was too strong. So they created these massive balance sheets where they were buying dollars, euros, you know, anything possible. It was seen by many as the biggest hedge fund in the world because they were also buying, for instance, U.S. stocks. And as inflation started to come back in, at the end of 2021, the Swiss National Bank has done what is called reverse currency war. So there have been basically reversing the trade. So instead of buying foreign currencies, they've been selling foreign currencies to let the Swiss franc appreciate. And through the appreciation of the Swiss franc, here in Switzerland, we are the only country where inflation is back to the target of the Swiss National Bank, which is between 0 and 2%. Currently, currently the inflation in Switzerland is 1.5%. And this is thanks to the strength of the currency. So there are not that many countries in the world which are able to use the currency as a weapon against inflation. We are doing it in Switzerland. But what does it mean for the long run is that if you consider, let's say, gold and Bitcoin as store of values, if there is one currency which is getting close to, let's say, the features of, of gold and and Bitcoin, it's the Swiss franc. And uh, let's say one common feature is the fact that we have very low yield, so almost no yield like gold and Bitcoin.
It's, it's quite interesting. I mean, everybody wants to say, you know, there's mean reversion in currencies, but your 50-year appreciation of the Swiss franc is an interesting yeah. one where there's, hey, this thing could go up for 50 years and there's no, and it's sort of what happened to the dollar. The dollar went down, you know, for much of the history of some of the broad international benchmarks is the dollar was weakening. My question is, is can there be a shift where the dollar is now a little bit more fundamentally strong currency? Um, now, your point is, hey, versus Bitcoin and gold. And it's interesting to say Bitcoin in the same sentence as gold. Is 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 the mentality shifting in your view? Is Bitcoin competing with gold? Um, I, a very controversial topic. Some people think it's just a speculative play. But in, as a CIO of a, a major institution over in Europe, is that a, a, a common mentality? Yeah, so I took a bit of carry risk to uh, promote Bitcoin as an investment asset for the last few years. So I got bashed by many of my peers, older or also younger. But I still believe in these phases because I believe that we are currently the new, we are going through an experiment, which is called the fiat system. Back in the 70s, there was this link between money and efforts or something tangible. Um, Banknotes were backed by gold. And then, you know, we move into a new system called the fiat currency system, when now money can be created um, from thin hair. And, and that means that, you know, the money printing machine is, keeps, you know, going, uh, going on, and that we are indeed going through this money debasement. And as you know, to make a long story short, the algorithm behind Bitcoin is called proof of work. And that means that for the first time in a very long time, there is, again, a link between money and effort and the use of energy. Bitcoin is as a supply which is capped. Um, the marginal supply is cut by two every four years. And by the way, we are getting closer to the April um, um, halving of, of the Bitcoin. And when you try to assess the value of an asset, um, you need to solve you know, equation with two unknowns, one which is supply and the other one which is demand. Supply, we know supply. We know the supply of Bitcoin. It's, uh, it's mathematical. Now you just need to figure out about the demand. And the demand keeps growing. Currently, there is just 0.4 Bitcoin per millionaire in the world. There is, uh, every year, there is 7% more millionaires. So they will struggle to get access to Bitcoin. And at the time where supply will, will become scarcer and scarcer. I think that the experiment with the ETF, the spots, uh, the Bitcoin spot ETF is quite interesting. Um, I think that billions continue to pour into the, these ETF. Uh, and by the way, it's very interesting. There are some very interesting charts showing that at the time where money is going out of gold ETF, money is going in inside uh, uh, Bitcoin ETF. And currently, there is for one, let's say, the one Bitcoin which is created through mining, there is 12 Bitcoin which are bought just by the ETF. So it just shows that how inelastic is the supply of Bitcoin and how big can be the supply-demand squeeze in the years to come. So to me, it's, Bitcoin is, 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 let's say, a super store value. So in a world where, you know, governments are spending a lot to let's say, ring fans the economy to create a competitive advantage where debt is going up massively, where they need to use financial repression as a way to, let's say, keep the system afloat. Store values and super store values will gain in value. And this is why, you know, as a hedge, uh, Bitcoin, which is digital gold and gold, both make sense. It's that's very interesting, and you know, I I personally had some believe in that, and and think uh, have been talked about that on on our show a number of times that it was a, a lot of ways this generation's gold. There's a big community, and uh, so I agree with you know with your thesis there. And and then the question becomes sizing in these things, and when you think about traditional stock, bond, commodity, and these alternative assets, you know, with this inflationary view, these deficit views. Is this a time you want to be underweight bonds and overweight? You know, part you know part of your fa- new fangs was things like commodities and gold and these Bitcoin type things. How do you think about a normal asset allocation? Where you would say today for the next decade compared to what you might have done for the last decade? 
Yeah, that's a very good point uh, because uh, if you look at um, the whole investment world, will it be institutional, will it be retails, will it be robo-advisors, you name them, you name them, they are all, let's say, being, let's say, most of them. I'm not talking about the endowment style. I'm really talking about the usual, let's say, uh, the normal 60-40 model. They've all been built on the assumption that there is negative correlation between equities and bonds. And by the way, talking about robo-advisors or any, let's say, SAA model, before going to SAA, you need to fill in a questionnaire about your risk profile. And if you look at the questionnaire, they are all reverse engineering to make sure that, you know, the portfolio is diversified into equities and bonds, still based on these, let's say, negative correlation concepts. So fast forward to this decade, we believe that, again, this time it's different, that the correlation between equities and bonds has shifted and we probably stay positive most of the time instead of negative as it was last decade. So that means that you need to create a new, let's say, SAA. One sentence, one way to summarize this is the following, is that if you have positive correlation between equities and bonds, that means that you're balanced portfolio, for instance, has become more risky. So if you want to keep your return to risk ratio unchanged, because the denominator is going up, so risk, that means that you need to look for a higher return. So how you solve this? Well, first, you decrease the allocation to bonds, you increase the allocation to equities, and two, you try to find new uh, diversifiers. So commodities is one, Gold is another one. And if, let's say, the local regulator allows it, you can in- indeed, let's say, consider Bitcoin as, let's say, um, a candidate for this. And I know that some of your competitors in the U.S. Uh, are rec- have recently, let's say, um, changed their model portfolio allocation and include some Bitcoin ETF into the, their um, balance or conservative uh, ETF model portfolio. So you can see that the trend is starting to, to move into that direction. And yes, you, you know, it's, I think that um, and I, I, as, as, let's say, human species needs to, to adapt and, and to change. And there is something changing. So we don't need to change everything, but you need to, we need to adapt. And one way to adapt in the world is to take into consideration let's say, the, the new um, return risk and correlation expectations and, and change model portfolios accordingly. So it sounds like the losers are bonds, the winners are these diversifiers. If, if you said who else is a winner in your new decade ahead, any other winners, countries, things that you would highlight as things people should be trying to shift their portfolios to and, and away from? Yeah, so let me uh, give you uh, two or three uh, examples. So one of them is that one, one, I think, winning long shorts currently in the U.S. market is that you go long the stocks which are benefiting from these, let's say, new world where the U.S. wants to stay ahead of the curve. So they are ahead of the curve thanks to AI, for instance, because AI is one way to enhance productivity. Uh, they will be ahead of the curve in terms of industrial production. So if you look at industrial stocks, they have been doing very well. So this is some, probably a long which will, let's say, continue. But then there is a price to pay for this. And the price to pay for all of these investments and inflation is higher interest rates uh, and higher inflation. And there are many business models which are not able to cope with this. So this is why for the first time probably ever, or at least in a very long time, we have a bull market where small and mid caps are underperforming. Why is that? Because many of these small and medium companies, they, are not, they have a lot of debt. They are not able to finance themselves cheaply. And they are currently becoming zombies. You know, I just checked, you know, in the US, 40% of the companies become zombies. In other ways, you know, they, the, the, debt, the, the, the debt costs, the, the cost of servicing their debt is higher than their earnings. Um, 
So that's the price to pay is that for, for let's say, this reindustrialization of the U.S. and also this uh, move into new productivity tools, some companies are paying the prices of, of higher interest rates and higher inflation. But then if you look at the new geopolitical landscape, um, there are some winners and losers. So we mentioned China. China is definitely a loser because China is, let's say, the relationship with the U.S. is falling apart. But some countries uh, are benefiting from this French shoring or near shoring. Take, two example, India. Uh, some of our iPhones are now being manufactured in India before they were manufactured in China. There is all of these made in India uh, trends, uh, which is making India, uh, Indian stock market, you know, a, a, a big. Uh, Mexico, look at the currency, look at the stock markets, uh, look at the economy. Mexico is, is benefiting from French shoring and also sending labor to the U.S. and benefiting from the remittances. So Mexico is a, is a big winner. Um, beyond that, uh, I think that if we move, let's say, beyond the traditional asset classes, I can see that because of the higher volatility stemming from positive correlation between equities and bonds, there is a shift into uh, illiquid assets, private assets. Uh, it has started a long time ago in the U.S. with the endowment model. Here, the goal of the rule of the game is to make higher return with less volatility by um, investing into uh, illiquids. And I can see this shift also happening in Europe, where more and more private clients are, let's say, uh, considering uh, investing into some illiquid assets beyond equities and bonds. Well, this has been a fascinating tour. I mean, this is uh, this outlook for the next decade ahead and how, how we people need to shift their their mindset from the old fangs to the new fangs. It's been a fun conversation, sort of the winners and losers of all this. Charles Henry Machow from CIO of Banks says, where can people find you? Well, they can f- well, they can. The easiest way is to find me on uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, so I'm, uh, I will try to, uh, I can answer to uh, to all messages uh, we appreciate happy to it. to interact with uh, anyone. And that is where my team found you. We have a very big fan of yours, Andrew, and my team uh, has been following your work. So, Jeremy, you got to get him on your program. We've got our producer telling me to sign off. Chris, thanks for helping us here in the studio. Charles, have a great weekend. Thanks for coming on. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.